dieting is a form of oppression. It is a form of letting certain parts of our population feel and believe that they're not good enough unless they change their bodies. Welcome to Shoulders Down, a podcast about intuitive eating and living. I'm your host, Leah Kern, and I'm an anti-diet dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor. In this podcast, you will learn to harness your body's innate wisdom to govern not just how you eat, but also how you live. It is my mission to help you heal your relationship with food and body so you can live your most aligned and fulfilling life. Welcome, and I'm so glad that you're here. Hello and welcome to Shoulders Down. I am so excited. I know I always say that. I'm always excited to be here and to be connecting with any guests I have on the show, but today is really, really an extra special episode. One of my greatest mentors, and I'll even use the word hero, is the person who I have the honor of interviewing today which I just feel so grateful to have had this opportunity. So today I'm interviewing Elise Resch, who is one of the co-authors of Intuitive Eating. And Intuitive Eating is my everything. If you're new here, hi, I'm an intuitive eating dietitian. And also I overcame my own disordered relationship with food through the intuitive eating framework. So intuitive eating has not only had a profound impact on my personal life, but also has changed the course of my professional life. I now run a private practice where I I work with clients using the intuitive eating framework. So I am so grateful to Elise, who is on the podcast today, and her co-author, Evelyn, for all of their labor and all of the love and energy they have put into developing the intuitive eating framework. So not only so that folks all around the world can use it to heal their relationship with food, um, but also so that as a practitioner, I have this framework to get to use to work with clients. Such an honor, such a gift to have her on the show today. We're not going to do a listener question because I don't want to take away anything from this really, really special interview. I said to her, my cheeks were hurting from smiling after. Um, she gives so much interesting behind the scenes insight into intuitive eating, the development of the framework, the backstory to how this all came to be. She also really honestly and vulnerably shares her own story with her relationship with food, which was really interesting to hear because I've heard so much about intuitive eating, but I had never heard her talk through her own story. So I really am so excited to introduce Elise Resch. So Elise Resch is a nutrition therapist in private practice in Beverly Hills, California, with 40 years of experience specializing in eating disorders, intuitive eating, and health at every size. She is the co-author of Intuitive Eating, now in its fourth edition, the Intuitive Eating Workbook, and the Intuitive Eating Card Deck. Elise is also the author of the Intuitive Eating Workbook for Teens and the Intuitive Eating Journal. She has published journal articles, print articles, and blog posts, and does regular speaking engagements, podcasts, and extensive media interviews. Her work has been profiled on NPR, CNN, NBC, The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Los Angeles Times, USA Today, and The Huffington Post, among others. Elise is nationally known for her work in helping patients break free from diet culture through the intuitive eating process. Her philosophy embraces the goal of reconnecting with one's internal wisdom about eating and developing body liberation with the belief that all bodies deserve dignity and respect. 
She's a social justice advocate, a member of the Healer Circle of Project Heal, a certified eating disorder specialist and supervisor, a fellow of the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals, and a fellow of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Welcome, Elise. I'm really so excited to have you. It feels like such a cool, beautiful, surreal moment for me. As I'm sure you hear all the time, intuitive eating really changed my life personally and professionally. Now it's the work that I do. So welcome to Shoulders Down. I'm so happy to have you here. Oh, and I'm delighted to be here too. Uh, Give me a chance to talk about intuitive eating and get the (laughs) word out to the world. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you so much, Leah, for inviting me. Of course, it's it's such an honor. So I'd love to hear, you know, I've read so much of your work, but in the intuitive eating book, the workbook and all different places, but I've never really heard you share about your story with, with your relationship with food. And so as much sure. as you're comfortable sharing, I'd love to hear what is your food and, and maybe even body image story. Oh, I'd love to talk about that. Thank you for asking. Most people don't. So I grew up in a home where there was no diet talk. I went to a high school where there was no diet talk. I didn't even know that what you ate could possibly have any impact on your body. It was it was kind of a naive, I guess, um, experience. My mother had a hyperthyroid condition, and so she was always trying to eat more. Um, I didn't see my father a lot, fortunately. He was a difficult person, so I didn't really understand until probably when I was 50, that he actually had kind of a binge eating disorder, but I didn't see that in childhood. I do recall the food was super important to me and I ate a lot and I enjoyed it and I went to food for some comfort, but never considered it to be disordered, never was told I was eating too much. Um, it was it was just a kind of an oasis, <laughs> you know, of enjoyable food. And and in school, my oh my well, my mother would pack me these large, wonderful, full lunches, and then I'd buy more snacks there. So I think food was always a joy for me until <laughs> I got into college. And the first um the first comment that I ever heard about food and body, and I know this sounds ridiculous because to, I work with so many teens and kids who are hearing this stuff all the time, but I went I went to UCLA and, my, and I was living in a dorm, which I did for four years, which was actually quite lovely. Um, the very first day of school, and I won't forget this, I went down to the cafeteria to pack my uh, lunch. They had a lunch line, so you could pack a lunch to take to school. And I was packing this huge tuna sandwich. It was on this big Kaiser roll. And it was, you know, this yummy looking tuna with lots of mayonnaise in it. And and this girl behind me goes, oh, my God. And I was like, what? What's the matter? I thought maybe there was a fly that had gotten on it. And she was trying to, you know, warn me of that. And she said, that's so fattening. And I had no comprehension of what she was saying. I had no idea what it was. But it was, it certainly, you know, you know, it chimed in my head and it stayed there for later when I understood what she was talking about. Okay, so let's, you know, move on. Six months a year, I met my, and I will say it this way, my 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 son's father's family. So my son's father and his parents who took me in as, uh, he was an only child, so they took me in as the daughter they'd never had. And I adored them throughout their entire lives, even when I was no longer with their son. But they were very orthorexic, especially my mother-in-law. So I think my um, my her name was Frida, and I think her her experience was growing up in a level of um, 
not poverty so much, but pretty low income. And her family owned a fruit and vegetable stand. And somehow she connected to the idea of healthy food. And I think she used that um, thought process to give her some sense of safety in terms of controlling health in her family. Mm. She had one son. She had ultimately my son, one grandson. And she just believed that um, what you eat is going to, you know, ultimately keep you alive forever, maybe, or something. Of course, orthorexia was not a term back in those years. And I had no idea that it was a disordered eating, um, you know, could even be a diagnosis at some point, but it influenced me. And so I ended up starting to restrict. I have a funny little anecdote. I remember being on a date and we're talking, we're talking back in the 60s. So this is a long time ago, but I do have this memory of being on a, on a date at, with him and I ordered a piece of pie and he ordered fresh pineapple and he started crying and he said, literally, and he said, you're going to be the mother of my children and how can you possibly eat like that? And that's horrible food. And so I started restricting on the basis of quote unquote health. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I cut out chips and fun foods and things I would call play food now. But it wasn't for the purpose of weight loss. It was for the purpose of staying, staying healthy. But I think that was the beginning of just some, you know, focus on not being able to eat intuitively, not that that was a term then. Uh, in any case, though, it was not, you know, any serious problem uh, until I, when my son was two, I decided I wanted to have another child and I thought maybe I should lose five pounds. Now, let me tell you, I had, I wasn't in graduate school yet. I had been um, uh, an elementary school teacher for four years when I got out of college and I didn't go back to graduate school until I was 30. So this was when I was 20, 28 because he was born when I was 26. And the narrative then was you lose weight before you get pregnant because you're going to gain weight in pregnancy, whatever, whatever yeah. the reason was. <laughs> so I decided, okay, fine. Not that, you know, I don't know. I just did it. I don't think I really thought deeply about it. And I started restricting and dieting and I started losing weight and I could never get pregnant again. And I want your viewers to hear this. I didn't learn until I got into graduate school that even one pound of weight loss a week can cause infertility. Mm -hmm. But of course, no doctor could figure out what was wrong with me. There was nothing wrong with me. No, but nobody asked me, are you eating enough? Have you been, you know, losing weight? Nothing like that. And I finally gave up the pursuit of that and decided to, you know, go on to graduate school and become a nutritionist because now I am was very entrenched in nutrition from this family and also focused on my body, focused on weight, focused on trying to keep my weight low. Uh, so it turned into a real eating disorder mm -hmm. and uh, it was dieting. And then it turned into binging and dieting and binging. I never had bulimia. I never purged, although I did try once, but I think I did purge through exercise. I would exercise twice a day. And I, I have to say this, Leah, I actually blessed this eating disorder because I didn't know where else to go with my wings. I know, didn't know how to handle my unhappiness at that point in my life. And um, so it got me through a lot of hard times until I was able to get into therapy at 35. And even though there was no treatment for eating disorders at all, then I remember even asking my therapist, do you think I have an eating problem? Because I was worrying about food all the time and I was restricting and I was feeling out of control. And and she looked at me and she said, well, do you throw up? And I said, no. And she said, no, you're fine. 
I was really underweight and I was not doing well, but she had no clue. And I can't blame her. There was no, nobody even knew about this. In fact, when I was in graduate school, we had one day in a developmental nutrition course on eating disorders and it was on anorexia. And they showed a couple of pictures of very malnourished, you know, young women. And that was it. Yep. So I knew nothing about it. But fortunately, I uh, got into therapy. I made some serious changes in my life and um and I started to heal and people say well where'd you go for treatment uh I didn't there wasn't treatment and I didn't even know I needed it it was more of uh I think letting go of the coping mechanism of trying to shrink my body trying to control my food uh, that I let go of because I didn't need it anymore mm-hmm. and I don't want that to um imply to any listener that um you, you can do this on your own. It's really hard. It's really hard. It just, it was just a number of forces that came together that allowed me to let go of that dysfunctional behavior I had. And now I will say that um, I have not had an issue with eating in 40 years. Mm-hmm. So since then, I just, I in, I love food. I enjoy it as much as I did as a kid. Um, I can't eat as much as I did as a kid. I'm in my late seventies now, and you know, bodies just don't need the same amount of food they do when you're, you know, when you're young and you're a teenager. Yeah. But uh, I love food. I am. Uh, I have very uh, positive body image in that bodies change. My body has changed as I've gotten older, and uh, I'm in something called radical acceptance. That this is not something we can control. I have very good self care. I, I really am dedicated to getting a good night's sleep as well I do every night unless I'm waking (laughs) up in the middle of the night worrying about something but I typically get really good sleep I move my body because I enjoy moving it makes me feel vibrant and it wakes me up after I've you know gotten up in the sixes in the morning and I can move around and feel like I'm alive um I've had lots of therapy I had therapy for 40 years I'm not in the moment in therapy but um and I'm in a happy relationship and, you know, lots of things, lots of, lots of hard things too. My son actually has schizophrenia. He was diagnosed at 19 and he's 51 now. So there's been a roller coaster for the last uh, over 20 years of his mental illness. Fortunately, he's in a very safe and loving environment and I get to see him. It's about an hour away from where I live and I get to see him a couple times a month and he's pretty settled down right now. Um but there's been a lot. My mother ended up with multiple sclerosis that she was diagnosed with when she was 50 and uh, went through a lot of uh, heartache with that. However, I I make the best life I can make. And my relationship with food and my body, I am so grateful, is very um, attuned and very happy. Yeah. Thank you so much (laughs) for sharing. That was a lot. No, it is so wonderful to hear. It's kind of like this mystery. I think so your work has touched so many people, but you very much speak about, you know, like the science and like the the intuitive eating framework, but not so much about your personal story. Um, so it's really interesting to hear kind of the the backstory as to how you ended up in this work. And there's even a little gap in your story of like where that happened, which we'll get into. There's two pieces that I pull from your story. And one is this, the theme of really, these behaviors don't de- develop for nothing. And I think about um, your 
the way you said it, your son's father's, uh, your son's father, his family. And th- like you, you really sh- kind of painted the picture as to like, how come they turn to orthorexia, um, you know, feeling of control when, when you don't have a lot of money or resources and, and wanting to be able to find control where you can. Um, and then I think about you and, and like you said, you, there was a lot going on in your world and it became something that you used to cope. And I, I just think that that's an important thing for people to, to really like understand that it doesn't come out of thin air like in hearing someone's story it's like okay this comes from from a need to to help you like your your body's trying to to serve you it serves you in some way like you put it so beautifully i'm grateful for the coping it provided well and and when you think about it i was not affected by diet culture growing up you know as a teenager in high school if you can imagine if there are emotional issues going on while at the same time you're impacted by all of the toxicity of diet culture, then it's, you know, an eating disorder is just ready, you know, it's ready right. to emerge. Right. And I didn't even have that piece of it. Right. It so, creates the perfect sermon yeah. now with social media, like teenagers going through like so many changes with friends and life and hormones, plus adding like constant exposure to TikTok and Instagram and really creates the perfect storm for an eating disorder to, to thrive. Yes. I often wondered, and let me add this to my story, back in high school, uh, I wasn't among the popular girls. I wasn't invited to the social clubs that would be like junior sororities. You know, it was, I w- had a different group of friends, and <laughs> I had a, a, a reunion, a high school, have gone to many, and there was one, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, and the group of popular girls were still sitting, and I that's in quotes, popular girls were grown women now, uh, were sitting at a table and I went up to them and I, you know, said, hello, they knew me, I knew them. And I said, I have to tell you, I was so envious of you when we were in high school, because it just, you know, I noticed that they seemed to be having fun and they were in these social clubs. And they looked at me and they said, oh my God, Elise, we were so envious of you because you were the smart one. (laughs) So I was, you know, with the, in in the Ephibian society, which was, you know, some honor you got for having good grades. And, and it was just so interesting to look back at, um, you know, what we, we envy what we don't have. And, and it went both, both ways. And I'm kind of, but the point of this is maybe had I been in one of those social clubs, maybe they were more focused on what they ate in their bodies. I don't, I have no idea, but uh, my group of friends weren't. So yeah. Yeah. I love that you guys had that moment of like, I was jealous of you. I was, I was jealous of you. It really just shows that <laughs> yes. like the, we always think the grass is greener. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And there's one other piece in your story that the this idea of like either I am like the girl in the textbook who's emaciated and like it's like a very overt presentation of an eating disorder or I must be fine or I must not be struggling. Mm-hmm. And that's something I see right. so much now too of like, no, you could be having this kind of like in-between experience that's still really painful to your emotional well-being and often not validated because it's like praise to, you know, having disordered eating in our culture. Yeah. And I mean, there's some narrative about you only look a certain way. Having an eating disorder means you look a certain way and you can have an eating disorder regardless of gender or color or size um, or disability. And uh, so that's, um, you know, that's a false, a false narrative. Absolutely. That you have to be this emaciated look. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it sadly hasn't changed much. Like I was only I was in my dietetics program, like, you know, just a few years ago. And right. like we still had those pictures in the textbook of, you know, the the person in the mirror and the black and white photo who's like so emaciated. Yes. And so it's not helping this idea of like, no, eating disorders can come in all shapes, sizes, races, all the things. Yeah. 
Oh, that must be the same picture, Leah, that I saw when I was in school. Yeah, I can see in my head right now. So I want to kind of hear about the this middle part of your story, which is like, okay, you went to school for nutrition from a place of, you know, being fueled Mm by this, the obsession. What happened between that point and the point where you end up developing the intuitive eating framework? What did that middle piece of your story look like? Sure. So um, I did my traineeship at a clinic affiliated with Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Uh, It was called the Center for Child Development and Developmental Disabilities. And it was a year program. And I was so fortunate to get this placement. They only took one student a year. That's where the good grades helped. (laughs) And um, I was um, so fortunate because it was multidisciplinary approach. There were 12 different health disciplines that were represented. And I got to learn, we rotated, and I got to learn not just from my supervisor in nutrition, but from the speech therapist, the physical therapist, all the different um, psychotherapists, the psychiatrist, the psychologist, the social worker. And um, I got very involved in working with these kids with developmental disabilities and their families. And I was running the feeding clinic there. In fact, I got, once I um, was done with the traineeship and graduated and did my master's thesis and all that, I uh, and passed my RD, I was hired there and worked there for a while doing that work. And that was my intention. That was what I was going to do for my career. It was work in that field. And, you know, best laid plans, once I got into my private practice, I wasn't getting referrals for that. Uh, in order to be referred to um, to a patient with um, a developmental disability, it has to go through something called the regional centers. This is in California. And they just, you know, they'd refer somebody to me and not really want to pay me very much for it. And it just wasn't happening. While at the same time, of course, word of mouth, I got to know, I told all my doctors and my dentist and my son's pediatrician and, you know, everybody around that I was in private practice. And I started getting referrals from the medical community for what? For weight loss, loss, right? But they would say, you know, um, oh, this person has high cholesterol or they have high blood sugar or they have, uh, you know, high hypertension. They have something and it was always with the help them lose weight so that we can fix this. And it never sat right with me. I think at that point, uh, at that point, I was not engaged in my own eating disorder anymore. And I just... uh, I just didn't want to be involved with something that was, you know, weight loss. It was, it just didn't feel right to me. It was just more of a kind of an intuitive psychic <laughs> sense about it. So I would get these clients and, but I was supposed to do what the doctor said. And I would put my focus on, you know, what foods can you add if your cholesterol is high or how can you have better self-care if, for these other things? But I still was putting them on plans. You know, I don't believe in meal meal plans per se Uh, at this point, certainly. But at that point, I would give them a plan and it would be based on the diabetic exchange system. And it was a diet. It was a diet. And I this is an important statement I'm going to make, Leah. I have I feel a sense of grace about what I didn't know then. I don't judge myself. I don't blame myself. It was all I knew. I was, um, that's all I was taught in graduate school. There was not an enlightenment. There was not a consciousness that we have today about, you know, how damaging that would be. And I weighed people and, you know, and they were happy when they would lose weight. And then, and what started happening though, was my inner, you know, queasiness about this was increased when there would be someone who couldn't follow the plan. And again, I have met, I have 
pretty good long-term memory. I don't remember what I did yesterday, but I have a pretty good long-term memory. And I remember this young woman coming to see me who was today, we would be calling her uh, someone with binge eating disorder. And I put her on this plan and she came back. She said, I can't do it. And I didn't know what to do with her. I was so not trained. I had no idea what to do with it, but it did confirm to me, this is not good. This is this whole process of telling people essentially, you know, not being commanding them, but but it's coming externally from me what they quote unquote should be eating and how much of it and how much they should be exercising. Um, it just wasn't working for some people. And for others who had come and they had lost weight and then they call me six months later, a year later, that feeling so defeated, they'd gained all the weight back and they would never blame me. They would always blame themselves. And it just wasn't right. And I didn't quite know what to do with myself because I wasn't doing the work with in developmental disabilities and I wasn't happy with this kind of work. And it just kind of um, kismet, I guess, kind of correlated with the very first literature that was coming out on non-diet thinking. Uh, there was a book I read by um, um, Jane Hirschman and Carol Munter there in New York, and it was called Overcoming Overeating. And it was the first time I read something that suggested that the idea of depriving oneself of certain foods is going to lead to overeating, as they called it, overcoming overeating. And it really struck me. And But what also struck me, they were not dietitians. One of them is a psychotherapist. I'm not sure what the profession of the other one is. When they were suggesting, just let your clients eat whatever they want to eat. And I'm here I am, this registered dietitian, nutritionist, whatever I was calling myself at the time. I call myself a nutrition therapist now, and that doesn't even fit, right? <laughs> Maybe an eating, uh, intuitive eating therapist. Anyway, um, I thought, how can I tell people to eat whatever they want to eat? I mean, I know that certain foods have more nutrients than other foods, but the psychology of it had got was getting to me. And as I said, at 35, I got into therapy. And so I'd been in therapy a few years by then. And I was fascinated by psychology and often thought, gee, maybe I should have become a therapist rather than a, you know, a dietitian, which I don't regret to this day. I think that there was definitely, I was meant to do the work that I'm doing. I was not meant to be a psychotherapist, even though I, I so respect and employ a lot of psychological, you know, theory in my work. Um, so I started reading more and more. I read Susie Orbach's book, Fat is a Feminist Issue. I started to well, and I was a very strong feminist. I went through the second, and I still am. I shouldn't say I was. I went through the second wave of feminism back in the late 60s and early 70s, Gloria Steinem and consciousness raising and um, feminist majority in politics and m many different things because I, you know, I truly believed uh, and do believe that, you know, everyone deserves respect and autonomy and should not be, you know, Nobody is better or worse than anyone else. In any case, this all came together. And I said to myself, I have to write a book. I mean, I just, I had all these thoughts, you know, coming, you know, flowing through me. So I sat down at my computer and I began uh, an outline for a book. And it correlated, I'm trying to think timing-wise, was this, was this right? Um, my son had suggested to me that I read a book called The Tao of Pooh. Winnie the Pooh. Taoism, T-A-O, mm -hmm. is a, you know, a, a Chinese philosophy that is based on 
not controlling life, you know, letting it flow. And this book, I read it and it was like, wow, it was a, there was a race between uh, Winnie and Eeyore, I believe I might have the characters wrong, but I think it was that. And, and they were racing to see who was going to get to the end point faster. And Winnie was meandering along and he was just, you know, looking at the flowers and enjoying, you know, the nature. (laughs) And Eeyore was just racing, racing. And Eeyore ends up stumbling over a rock, falls down and Winnie Winnie wins the race. And I said to myself, I'm going to call this book The Tao of Eating, that we have to stop controlling eating. We have to stop telling people what to eat. Uh, We just have to help them, you know, tune into themselves and, you know, smell the flowers kind of thing. (laughs) And so I started, you know, as I said, I had chapter headings and I had thoughts and I had a title. And at the same time, my co-author, Evelyn, um, Evelyn Triboli, was um, Evelyn lives about an hour away, actually not too far from where my son lives. And she was coming up to LA once a week to see a couple of clients up here. And I had office space and that she rented some for me. And we had, we didn't know each other before, but I think it was my best friend who also knew her said to her, I think Elise has some space. Why don't you check in with her? So I met Evelyn and um, one day, and she had had, she had written one book, which was called Eating on the Run, I believe. And she had an agent. And I don't know how that happened, but she did. And um, one day, she was walking down the hall, and I looked at her, and she seemed as if she were, she was unhappy about something. And I stopped her. I said, Evelyn, what's the matter? And she said, oh, I'm so frustrated. I'm trying to write this book with a psychologist, and the psychologist doesn't know how to write. And it was just this moment of being, um, that comes from Virginia Woolf. Anyway, it was a moment of being where I said, I just said to her, I'll write the book with you. Because when she said she had a psychologist who didn't know how to write, first of all, I knew I was a good writer because I had minored in English in college and I always loved literature and I thought I was a pretty good writer. And I was so interested in the psychology part. And so I thought, okay, let's collaborate on this. And whatever yours is about, let me do the psychology part. So we sat down and talked about it. And that's how it began. She dropped this other person. Uh, she had So she had, start, had been writing something somewhat similar to what I was wow. writing, not the same, but, you know, it was, uh, I think she had also been uh, open to the non-diet approach. And, um, and we began. And so we wrote a proposal, which is a very lengthy uh, process. And since she had the agent, which was very lucky, he was able to put it out to uh, publishing companies. And we got three offers. This is a quite a while ago. The first book came out in 95. So this was probably about 1993, almost 30 years ago. And uh, we went with St. Martin's Press and that's the beginning of the story. From a, as an intuitive eating nerd, it's so cool to hear the behind the scenes and like all the little moments of like, just meant to be I'm, I'm Jewish and like I'm out here my mom's voice right now saying like share it like yeah, yeah. and just it's like Bechert. Bechert, Bechert, that's what my mom right. would say like and so yeah. just like the moment of like she needed office space and then you had a mutual friend who said that you had the office space and all of these little micro moments and how it started the, the birth of something that's now touched so many people it's really it's beautiful to hear the the story and and it makes me feel like so in the know to know the behind the scenes. It's very cool. Yeah. And I would say it's absolutely beshared. And um, it's a form of synchronicity um, where it's just, 
it's not coincidence. I no. think it's spiritual. I think things happen in the Bashert way yeah. to to bring two elements together to make you know something bigger. And that's yeah. that's how it began. And so the first book came the first edition came out in 1995, as I just said. It's yeah. And now we're in our fourth edition. Yeah. So my next question for you, Elise, is like how was what was this experience like? Like it's such a counterculture moment of like suggesting that you know there should be no rules and people should you know divest from this idea that like they need a, a prescription to follow in order to to manage their eating what was that like for you both I, I know you can only speak for yourself but for that that experience of launching something into the world that was so opposite what was going on in the world so it's a really good question and i think that question is actually what formed the basis for having the 10 principles of intuitive eating. We were told by publishers that people like to have, you know, uh, kind of steps to something. Uh, I remember reading the seven habits of highly effective people by Covey Covey at the time, which was was a brilliant book. And, you know, different books had seven and eight or nine or 10. So it was, I think that the 10 principles is actually um, a bridge from uh, being told what to do to having no guidance, because the ten principles give you guidance, but they they help you um, shift old thinking into new thinking, so that it does become your own in terms of eating. So, I think that uh, that was a that was a gift. I don't know whether it was the publisher or the agent, probably both of them that said that. I think that was a gift that helped it be accepted in the world. Because had it been a free-for-all kind of idea, which I think was in some of the other, a um, uh, couple of the other books, Janine Roth had written um, a couple of books, basically just fill your cupboards with, you know, everything you want. And it was, it was more of a free-for-all feeling. And I think it scared a lot of people. I talked to people today who read that and it opened them up to not dieting, but it also terrified them to have no guidance at all. Right. So I think that may, and I've never, I'm glad you're asking this question because I have never thought about this, the answer to what you asked, because I haven't thought about the question, but I think that that having the 10 principles was what gave people a little sense of security. Okay. There's something I can follow. Right. But of course, as you're reading the book, as you're understanding it, you know, that it's their, their guidelines, they're not rules. They're just ways of helping you, as I say, challenge old thinking and change, unlearn old ways and learn new ways. Yeah. That makes so much sense as as a bridge. uh, You know, it's not like telling people to go totally rogue. It's like, okay, there's still a framework here. There's something. Yes. And I'm curious too about the research side, because of course, research helps appeal to people of like, okay, there, there's science to back this up. But I imagine like in the beginning, because it was new, how could there be research to show that it was a, a effective framework? Um, what was that uh-huh. like kind of from edition one to four with the research being the field growing? Well, we were very lucky that Tracy Tilka, who is a researcher, I guess she had read Intuitive Eating. It really spoke to her. And we were connected with her. I can't remember how that happened. Tracy really began, well, Stephen Hawks did some of the research on it too early on. We we didn't uh, personally know him, I don't believe, but he had written, he had done a couple of studies, but then Tracy Tilka got involved, contacted us. We talked to her and she, she has done a multitude of studies, either either as the head author or you know one of the authors of the studies, 
um, on intuitive eating, and it just snowballed from there. And, you know, we started with just a few studies. We now, I think, have close to 200 studies that validate intuitive eating as an evidence-based process um, for increased mental and physical health. And uh, some of the studies, and I will confess to you, I'm not the research part of the team. Evelyn is. Evelyn has the research head, so she can quote you, you know, (laughs) years and populations and names of studies. And I'm like, okay, good. (laughs) It's just not my my thing. But it's just... uh, it's just grown and grown and grown all the time. And what I was about to say was that I believe that so many of the studies have diverse populations of age and you know gender and ethnicity. And so it's um, it's been studied in many, many different environments. Yeah, I, I like that. You guys are a team in that way of like, you don't both have to be the research brain. And there's other there's so many other aspects right. like what I love about the intuitive eating book are all the stories, like the element of storytelling that just appeals to how my brain works of like different client right. studies. And all, I, I love the combination of research and stories. I think they, they really like help appeal to different parts of the brain. Absolutely. I agree with you. Yes. <laughs> and the stories have come, of course, come from, for, from my end of it, 40 years of seeing patients. And I still have a full-time private practice uh, and never intend to retire because I l- I love my clients. I love the work with them. I love seeing them uh, reach that place of freedom and trust yeah. and and let, letting go of this, you know, prison that they're in. So, yes, I have many stories after 40 years. And interestingly, I, I have people who've come back to me. I've had several clients who saw me as teenagers wow. whose parents stopped them from seeing me because I wasn't helping them lose weight. Mm. And that's what the parents wanted, especially the mother. And uh, they've come back to me in their 30s and said, I remember, I just remember how it touched me, what you had to say. And I've worked with them to help them heal their eating disorders, which typically, you know, um, began as a result of being pressured to be thinner. And in fact, that's such a um, a pretty strong narrative among so many of my clients that they were told that they weren't good enough at their size or that they weren't thin enough or that they were eating too much. And right. and it went on to eating disorders. How powerful that they remembered that connection and the, the experience they had with you and came back so many years later. It gives me chills. I want to hear about some of the the uh, various editions of intuitive eating. So I know in the most current edition, there's pieces about more like the social justice element, health at every size. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to hear mm-hmm. what you've learned along the way in each edition, and what are the pieces in the most current edition that um, you just didn't, you know, weren't a part of the, the first one right. because it just wasn't on your radar yet. Right. Well, interestingly, the first and second session, second edition are basically identical, except that I wrote a chapter on eating disorders for the second edition that got tacked onto the end. It was an interesting time. We got an offer from the publisher for a second edition. They gave us six weeks to write it. And uh, Evelyn had some thing personal going on in her life and wasn't fully available for it. So I said, let's do this. We'll just keep the same book. I'll mm-hmm. write I'll write a chapter on eating disorders. So if anybody has the first or second edition, throw it out. It's so old because that first edition was 95. The second edition was 2003. I mean, we're talking almost 20 years old and we have evolved so much. Um, In fact, let me say that the first edition on the cover said something like, reach your natural weight. Now, even though it wasn't 
to be a weight loss idea. It, it was like your body will be whatever it's going to be. A lot of misinterpretation came from that. People thinking that it was a diet. It was a way to lose weight. And we have been very diligent not with the second edition, because there was no editing of it, but the third and fourth edition to look for any hidden, you know, statements that might indicate that intuitive eating is about weight or, you know, weight loss or weight. So um, I want to jump into the third edition, the changes that happened in the third edition. I have a little interesting story for you. I'm glad we have a good amount of time. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was, um, I was uh, looking at the, uh, speak a list of speakers for an eating disorder conference I was going to be going to. And I noticed that there was the speaker talking on intuitive eating, some man I didn't know. I went, oh, that's interesting. So I called or I wrote to him and I said, hi, I'm Elise Resch. I'm one of the co-authors of Intuitive Eating. I see that you're going to be speaking about intuitive eating at this conference. And he wrote back and said, oh yeah, it's going to be a great talk. I'm glad you're coming to it. You know, please attend. Okay, cool. So the night before the talk, I looked at the flash drive that had been provided for us. And I looked at his slides. And I went, Oh, my God, he is bashing intuitive eating. I was horrified. Nothing I could do about it at that moment. It was at night. Next morning, I go to the talk. It's it's um, standing room only. People are so in interested in intuitive eating. And this would I would say that this was in 2010 or 11. Okay. And uh, I walked in and he got, got a chair for me, greeted me, he got a chair for me because there were no chairs available and proceeded to introduce me as one of the esteemed authors of intuitive eating. His first slide was a picture of would have been the second edition that had Evelyn and me in the, you know, book on that. And um, his first statement is, I looked in the dictionary for a definition of intuition, and it said instinct. And we all know we can't eat by instinct alone. So intuitive eating can't work. And he was also priming for some book he was going to be writing. It was horrifying. And I sat there for the hour of that talk, um, speechless. <laughs> and when it was over, I couldn't even look at him. I walked out of the room. I was so angry, so upset. So many of my friends and colleagues came up to me, Elisa, are you okay? And yeah. so I immediately called Evelyn and I said, Evelyn, this is what happened. And ironically, she was going to be on a panel with this man with a couple of days after this. She was so glad that, you know, I was able to tell her about this so she could prepare herself for it. And what I said to her is, Evelyn, I don't think people truly understand what intuitive eating means mm. because he is interpreting it as all instinct and it isn't all instinct. Yep. At the same time, I was reading a book by Peter Levine, who is a renowned somatic therapist um, who wrote a book called, I think it's Waking the Tiger. And Peter was talking about um, the development of the brain. And as I was reading it, I went, oh my goodness, this is it. Intuitive eating encompasses all parts of the brain. So that instinctual part, which is connected to the reptilian part of the brain from the dinosaur age, dinosaurs didn't have feelings or thoughts. They just had the instinct to survive. They just went and, you know, ate, new, ate little dinosaurs or shrubbery or whatever they ate to survive. And then there was another part of brain de brain development, which it's controversial now, whether it was actually there during the reptilian age, it just wasn't activated yet or whether it developed later, but um, it's called the uh, mammalian brain or the limbic brain. And so when mammals 
uh, evolved, this part of the brain uh, developed and it's a seat of emotions and social behaviors. So if you have pets, you know that your cats, your dogs, they have feelings and they'll show their feelings. You know, they'll be on the bed if they're mad at you or whatever, <laughs> but they don't have the ability to, you know, articulate um well, I was gonna say their thoughts. I don't know whether they actually have thoughts, although some of my clients think that their their dogs definitely think and, and could speak. But in any case, so that's that was this part of the brain. And then as we became humans, what differentiates us as humans from lower level mammals is the uh the neocort uh neocortex or the um the rational part of the brain. And so it just was like this light bulb that went off in me that said, okay, so intuitive eating is all these three parts. So the statement um, that intuitive eating is a dynamic interplay of instinct, emotion, and thought comes from that. So you can see, yes, intuitive eating certainly involves instinct. That part of our brain is what gives us hunger and, you know, wants us to survive and where we have those sensations of fullness and, um, you know, how our bodies feel and what tastes good. And the emotional part of the brain can sometimes impact those instincts. You know, mm -hmm. if you're highly stressed and um, your cortisol is running and your, your adrenaline's running, your cortisol is raising, uh, appetite can go away. And so that can affect the instincts or sometimes emotions can send you to eat well beyond fullness because of the of the emotional need for comfort. And then that's when we employ the rational part of the brain to be able to kind of temper the emotions, comfort ourselves mm -hmm. and make the best choices for ourselves based on self-care. We have to eat anyway. I mean, even if you're sick and you don't have much of an appetite, I don't mean stomach flu, but, you know, if you yeah. have... Um, a cold and you, your appetite's not there. You still have to eat. You have to take care of yourself. And our clients with eating disorders who have lost touch with their hunger and fullness signals, that's where they have to be able to have a dialogue between the kind of the parts of themselves, the eating disorder part and the rational part, employing that part of the brain to, to help them to make the decision to eat. So the third edition introduced that concept of, um, you know, the dynamic interplay. And I just love it. That's how I, when I'm asked what is intuitive eating, this is how I explain it. I think it goes well beyond. It's a self-care, you know, 10 principle framework. I don't think that really explains it the way, yeah. the way this does. Okay. So that was that second, that third edition that came out in 2012. And then um, the fourth edition. So we, as I said, we combed through it. We tried to be really careful to make sure there was nothing stigmatizing in the book, you know, in terms of weight. We wanted to talk about weight, weight stigma and social justice and health at every size, as you mentioned before, Leah, and um, help people uh, really un understand that dieting is a form of oppression. It is a form of uh, letting certain parts of our population feel and believe that they're not good enough unless they change their bodies. And mm -hmm. that oppresses people. And uh, I'm very much uh, focused on social justice in my own life and my own work, uh, anti-oppression work. Um, I have hired an anti-racist coach and I'm trying to really open open myself up to understanding uh, the impact of things that are said and concepts that um, affect so many people to give them a lower quality of life because they don't feel good enough about themselves. So that's, you know, a thrust of that book. Um, 
And the chapter, oh, the third edition, I also wrote a chapter on raising kids as intuitive. I forgot. Let me go yeah. back to the third edition. I wrote a, I wrote a chapter on raising kids as intuitive eaters, and that and Evelyn wrote the chapter on research. So that's that was the difference in the third edition. And then um, in the fourth edition, I uh, wanted to add to my chapter. And when I say add, they're always editing it down. So I am like, I write and write and write and write. It all has to get edit, edited down. So I had to let some stuff out in order to be able to write about baby, what's called baby led weaning or actually baby led solid, you know, solids, yeah. uh, that that concept of intuitive eating for babies. And so I added that to that chapter and I revised the eating disorder chapter and Evelyn expanded on the research chapter and we went through the whole book and edited it. Edited it, it, it. And um, <laughs> recently, Evelyn said something like, Well, if there's ever a fifth edition, I'm like, Oh my, <laughs> writing a book is. Um, Writing a book is is time consuming, overwhelming, and I have written a couple of my own, uh, my intuitive eating workbook for teens and my intuitive eating journal. And then Evelyn and I did the intuitive eating workbook, and we have our card deck. So it's it's. I think I was working on five books over six years, and I kind of like okay. <laughs> I also wrote a chapter with Tracy Tilka in uh, a book on body image, oh. uh, the handbook on the handbook on body image, and I can never remember. I have it here. I can remember the whole title and i've also written a chapter on a book that isn't out yet um that is anecdotes you're talking about stories it's it's uh, looking at the people who have been working in this field of you know kind of changing the world around eating and their history of how they got there so i wrote mm. that and i also one last thing i'm so grateful that sumner brooks and amy severson wrote how to raise an intuitive yeah. eater and i was uh, grateful to be able to consult with them through the writing of the whole book and, you know, do a little editing and and give ideas. And then I wrote the foreword for that book. So I think I'm kind of at a stage in my career where I'm a little bit done with yeah. writing, but maybe consulting with others on their writing or, okay, Evelyn, if we do end up having to do another edition. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's, it's awesome to hear the history. And, and just like thinking of like, you said it earlier in the interview, it's like, you only can do the best you can. I think, I think there's like a Maya Angelou quote until you know better and then you could do better, but all these pieces of like health at every size and, and the overlap of um, social justice work, it was just not on your radar in the beginning. And I think I've read the most, the third and fourth. And um, it's interesting to see the the little differences, even little things like um, you and Evelyn, both like naming your privilege in the beginning is Mm -hmm. very much Mm -hmm. like these little changes that I think really do go a long way. I'm right. curious to to hear about, I mean, kind of on, in, on the topic of what that man did in that presentation where he was like totally slamming intuitive eating and also misunderstanding it as only mm-hmm. like simply, you know, the reptilian brain part, but not the um, emotion and the logical rational brain part. Right now, I, I think it's it's just like such a widespread thing where the framework is being co-opted and like misunderstood as social media grows and people only hear bits and pieces. How how can a person spot fake or adulterated intuitive eating? And what are some of the most common misconceptions? I mean, you name that one very clearly um, that you see people having with intuitive eating. Well, I think that if you see anything that suggests, and if you do this plan, you'll be able to lose weight, um, right there, it's a red flag, and you know that this is not truly intuitive eating. Um, I think that just because the term is used, people have to 
uh, spend a little time going deeper to understand whether it is being used or whether it is something that's written by, let's say, an intuitive eating counselor who is, you know, like Sumner and and Amy, who who were very skilled in intuitive eating. Um, for example, I hate to use the name of it, but there's that um, weight loss plan called Noom, Noom and they are using intuitive eating language in it to the point that when I researched it and read some of it, some of what they did, they're using my words. I can see words that I actually wrote in intuitive eating that they, that they took co-opted, took it out and put it in there. And they're claiming that it's psychological that, um, you know, if you follow this path, you're going to lose weight. And then, yeah. but when you really get into it and Evelyn and I both decided we'll buy it for, a you know, the, to see what it's like. I couldn't stand being on it for more than a day or two. And I was only on it to understand what they were doing. They start asking you, what weight do you want to be? And, and they tell you how many calories and which are the red foods and which are the green foods. And, and, um, but here's the, the toxicity of it is that they uh, blame the user if it fails that they didn't they didn't do the psychological work or else it would have succeeded. Right. So I mean if you just take you know little time to to go deeper than just if somebody says this is intuitive eating yeah. to see that it's so counter to it. Right. Or if it's a celebrity like Gwyneth Paltrow who came out with intuitive fasting which you absolutely know that she was co-opting the term intuitive because it's so popular. And I just have to laugh. I mean I intuitively fast when I'm asleep. <laughs> right. No, I'm not eating when I'm sleeping, but it's just um yeah, it's out if it's if you can see that it's out there for sensationalism to make a lot of money to try to get somebody to lose weight, um then you can start to become suspicious yeah. and just go to the source. Yeah. The source. How do you handle these moments of like seeing them using your words in the case of Noom or seeing an adulterated, you know, version of intuitive eating? Yes. I'm so frustrated and I didn't even write the book, create the framework. How right. do you navigate that? Well, I, Evelyn and I started by hiring a lawyer to see if there was anything that we could do. See, intuitive eating is not trademark, the term. The book is copywritten, but it, the, the the term intuitive eating is not trademark. I think I think trademarked. I think at one point we looked into that and we're told it's those words are in the vernacular. They can't be trademarked. So we hired this lawyer to say we've got to fight against Noom. And he's he was a recommended to us as a very um you know, high-end lawyer in this field of intellectual property. And he said to us, you can't do anything. He said, they have so much money and so much power and you don't have that money and you don't have that power and your emotional life will be impacted and you'll lose a lot of money. So mm. you just yeah. can't do anything. And so it's, it's. I'll tell you really, Leah, how I handle it. I think of it very spiritually. I think of it as I don't have control. I don't have control of what's going to happen. I can speak as often as I can, like today, and explain this to people. And the more people that I can touch, you know, you're talking about Beshared, and I think of Tikkun Olam, which is uh, one of the values of Judaism, which is repairing the world. If I can get the message out there in my small way to as many people as I can, and it spreads, and one person heals, and then that person says something to someone else, and little by little, the world is healing. Mm -hmm. um, I just have to believe <clears throat> that the force of healing has got to be greater than this force out there to steal. I just have to believe that. So yeah. it's a spiritual way that I handle it. 
I love your outlook and I love that you're bringing in like Takuna Lum. Like it's like, that's such a beautiful way to look at it. Um, And also that kind of non-resistance energy of like, you could put your energy towards continuing getting the message out or towards fighting. And it's, it's very powerful. Your whole outlook. This wasn't a question that I planned on asking you because I don't think I, I um, knew that spirituality was such a big part of your world. I'm curious if you feel like there's an intersection of intuitive eating and spirituality, like if you would consider intuitive eating spiritual work. A hundred percent. And let me see if I can tell you all the ways. Uh, in When I'm talking to people about um, building a foundation of healing, I, I talk to them about four levels of healing and the, the bottom, the foundational level is just feeding yourself. I mean, we have to feed the body and the brain. It's it's uh, physiological, neurochemical. And the next level is cognitive, where we're challenging all those old thoughts, unlearning the old ways of diet culture and, and learning new ways. And then the four, third level is emotional, because I think it's too hard to get to the emotional aspects of life when you're still having diet thoughts, you know, and you don't, and you're not feeding yourself well enough. But then the fourth level is spiritual. And my belief is, is that when we are able to find our purpose here, our, our, I'll use another term. This is going to be a whole Jewish, Jewish uh, podcast. I love it. Uh, the the word tikkun, which is in tikkun alam, but tikkun can also mean your purpose for being here. I think we each need to to work toward what is our purpose, and it doesn't have to be being president or being you know uh, an author. It can be something that is, has deep meaning and can impact others. And our connection, our relationships, relationships are so important in spirituality to me. Um, it's not about religion. I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, proselytizing any form of religion, but it's more about uh, a sense. And let me go to this level that, you know, how did we get made? <laughs> you know, yes. I mean, it wasn't to me when I studied physiology and anatomy and in graduate school, I thought, God, this has proved to me there's got to be more than just, you know, <laughs> whatever i mean there's got how, all these incre- if you've ever studied not you but if your audience has ever studied science and knows how the body works there's thousands of kind of millions of of chemical reactions that have, have to happen in the body every day to keep us alive so to me there's got to be a larger force there and this this knowing this intuition, this knowing has got to be coming originally from somewhere else. Yes. Maybe I'm getting a little no, bit too you, far with this, but yeah, not at all. Ahead. So I don't think we're connected on social media, but my name on not my handle, my like where it says in bold your name and we can connect later is spiritual okay. intuitive eating dietitian. And I had oh, a like, wow. And, and, you know, I had a trouble with that at first because I was like, I want to be able to reach people who feel spiritually connected and who mm-hmm. that, that's a part of their identity so they can feel seen by me. Um, but I have to say I had trouble with that in the beginning because I think sometimes people hear the word spiritual and they think of like woo-woo crystals, like mm-hmm. kind of out of mm-hmm. touch, you know, up in the sky, not grounded. So it's really, it's really cool to hear you describe that because um, it really resonates with with why I believe this is spiritual work as well. And another Jewish moment, um, there's yeah. there's a quote about spirituality from I think it's Abraham Joshua Heschel. It, he's okay. um, he uh-huh. wrote a few books, and he says I just pulled it up while you're talking. He says our goal in life should be to live in radical amazement. Get up in the morning and look at the world in a way that takes nothing for granted. Everything is phenomenal. Everything is incredible. Never treat life casually. To be spiritual is to be amazed. Oh. 
that's um, that's so I mean, that brought tears to my eyes. That is so perfect, and and to be to have that gratitude for our bodies and for the fact that we can get these, be connected to them and get messages from them and, and uh, the beauty of the beauty of living. I feel so sad for some of my clients who are so ensconced in their eating disorders and they're missing out on life. I mean, life goes by very quickly. Let me, I, I just, I'm 77 and a half and I, I can't, I don't know how it's gone by so fast, but yeah. it does. And I think if we can be in, you know, in gratitude and appreciation for the miracles of our bodies, for the fact that, you know, our hearts beat every day and, um, and to, to care for ourselves with respect and self-care because we're miracles. We're yeah. miracles that we're alive. Right. So. Yes. Oh, so beautiful. And it's something I don't really hear being talked about, the spiritual element of intuitive eating. And I love this idea of like connection to something greater of, of, you know, this, this innate wisdom baked into every cell that's so much, so much bigger than we can even imagine. And, and yeah, when you're, we have this tunnel vision for trying to manipulate the size or shape of your body, you really lose sight of the the greater miracle at play. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and for those of us who are, you know, scientifically oriented, because I have that side of me as well, you know, master of science degree. I mean, think about, think about genetics, think about intergenerational trauma, think about how things do get passed on from, you know, one generation to the next, historically, going back to even looking at, you know, a picture of a great grandparent and seeing your eyes in that, in that. So, so much can you know, spiritually be passed on as well, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe, again, going off in a different direction, but I think that science would not um, negate spirituality in this way. Yeah. Mm, so beautiful. And I could not agree more. And you're not going off in a direction that, I mean, I, I could have a whole other conversation about that. It really, that really lights me up. Um, so you have this section on your website, which I, I absolutely loved when I discovered words of wisdom. And uh-huh. I feel like that's also in a way, maybe correct me if it doesn't feel true, but like a nod to kind of intuitive eating being about more than just food, like the the spiritual element, the, the connection to the, the whole in life. And there's so many pieces on there. I wish we could like dissect every bullet, but a few I want to pull out. Um, it, one of them, you talk about the concept of intuitive eating being centered on self, self-compassion and having this, taking this perspective of like, for the most part, um, you also talk about mm-hmm. the spiral of healing and avoiding perfectionism. So many things that can kind of like be summarized by like increasing self-compassion. And I'd love to hear you share a few words on why is self-compassion central to to intuitive eating? So I do a lot of inner child work. Uh, I don't know if that, yep. you know, is known to a lot of people. Uh, I am a strong believer that um, we hold with us our entire lives, the feelings of our little kids, our teenagers. Um, I'm very aware. I'm very rebellious. If you tell me what to do, I'm going to be, you know, a toddler and a teen and, yeah. and, and, <laughs> um, and say, uh, you know, you know, no to it. I think we have to have a perspective that um, our thoughts are not created by us. So let me explain that. I think that all babies, I know that all babies are born with instincts and emotion, those two parts of the brain, because, you know, that's why they cry to have, when they're hungry. That's why they cry when they're scared. 
But our thoughts are put into us. If you put that same baby in uh, a home where they speak, they don't speak English, they're going to speak the language of that home. If you put that baby in a home where there's full embracing of all sizes and shapes, that baby is likely not to grow up with a belief that they're not, you know, that they're not good enough. So self-compassion starts with understanding that so much is put into us and affects us and that we haven't had control over it being, you know, we interject so much from the outside world. And so, so many people are beating themselves up for not doing things right. But where are they getting that idea of what's right and wrong, but from an external place that's put into them? And so when you let go of, of blaming and shaming and um, and just have this compassion for the fact that we're, we have survived, you know, years from birth to the point we're at with a lot of toxic messages put into us and, uh, any form of, you know, guilt we have about ourselves or about our eating is only, you know, an expression of, being told that there's something wrong with us. So we need to have that self-compassion for understanding that we didn't create any of this. And um, to get through it, being kind to ourselves, being loving to ourselves, not judging ourselves. Judgment is just the worst. Judgment and, and guilt, by the way, just I'll go off on a sidebar. I mean, we all need to have the ability to feel guilt. Otherwise, we're sociopaths. We just have to have, because a sociopath will do anything to anybody and not feel anything for it. But we just have to be under, understand that guilt is only appropriate when we've harmed someone else, not toward, you know, anything that we right. uh, have eaten or um, how we look or anything like that. It's just, um, it's just so uh, harsh and unfair to us. And so coming from a place of self-compassion means we're understanding all of this, that so much of this is put into us and that we have the opportunity and, um, you know, the opportunity to be able to form thoughts and and help ourselves get through so much of this toxicity and be by being kind to ourselves, by not judging ourselves, by not, you mentioned perfectionism. I mean, where does that come from? I was talking to a to a client yesterday who um, you know, I said, where does this perfectionism come from? And she was like, right there, you know, exactly what her mother would tell her and say to her, have self-compassion. You grew up in that environment where you came to believe that you had to be perfect in order to be valuable. So stop beating yourself up for when you make mistakes, be self-compassionate for it. It, it just goes into to so many areas of um, self-kindness, and then it leads to kindness to others. I think the more self-compassionate you are, the more compassionate you are for others. It goes back mm -hmm. and forth. So, wow, yeah. <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. it's, I think so many people don't even realize that they're speaking to themselves so harshly because it's just like so right. internalized that they're just the water they're swimming in and they don't even realize, oh, it's possible to actually have a, a more kind inner dialogue, which like you're saying, can have this this wide ripple effect of more kindness to yourself, more kindness to others, and you know, can can ripple like that. I, I find often people don't even realize that they're they're being so harsh. Well, yeah, and they often would not be to someone else. I mean, they would not treat a, a little kid the way they treat themselves. They would not say the things to to a best friend that they say to themselves. So yeah. they I, I find that most of my clients 
have compassion for others. They just don't have compassion for mm-hmm. themselves. And it's it's a belief that they should have known better. If you hear the word should, you know it's a problem. They should have known better. They should have done it better. They, they're so harsh with themselves rather than we do the best we can do at the time. Yeah. And what we were talking about earlier, Leah, about having some, um, you know, grace for what we didn't know, having that self-compassion for how can you know everything right. when you're born? You didn't. <laughs> and, and so having the openness to unlearn old ways and learn new ways and have self-compassion for what the fact that you didn't know when you were yeah. younger and the um, gratitude for having the drive to learn new ways and then to take them seriously and make changes for yourself and in the world. That comes from self-compassion. That doesn't yeah. come from beating yourself up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So on the Words of Wisdom page, you have another piece that is so powerful. And I talk about this often with my clients, this concept of the sadness of saying enough when a person realizes Uh they are no longer hungry, but wants to continue eating to avoid feeling that sadness. This is just like such a, I think, a a light bulb moment I see for so many of my clients. And it's cool. Um, I I think I read a longer paper that you wrote about this. Um, Uh and I'd love to hear you talk on how can a person navigate this sadness and what can they do to uncover what they are actually in need of in these moments if it's not really food? So let me go, uh, you know, explain it a little bit, uh, this concept of sadness. I think that it's, um, it's a human emotion to have a feeling when something that's wonderful is coming to an end. I think it's just human nature. If you're on a fabulous vacation and you're loving it, and yeah, you you like being at home, you like your work, but oh boy, you know, you're not <laughs> going to get to see the sunrise every morning and you're not going to get to whatever you were doing on the vacation. And you have this moment of, oh, I'm sad, but you live through it. You get through it, you get home, you get back into your life and you look forward to the next time you can have a vacation you're reading a book. I'm a very big book reader. I mean, if anybody ever saw Matilda, the the musical, it's my life story. Books books got me through some really hard times. I love books. And if I'm in a particularly de- yummy, delicious book, and I'm dying to know the outcome for the characters, I kind of feel like I know the characters as I'm reading the book. And I come down to the last few pages, I get sad. <gasps> the book is over. And even though I want to know how it ended, I'm now done. And so I have to live through that moment of sadness. And I have to say to myself, it's okay, there will be another book. And I think this, and the same thing applies to eating. I mean, if you're truly into the satisfaction of eating, which is my theme in terms of my work, um, looking for satisfaction and joy in your eating, and you're at that point where your body is physically, you know, satiated, physically satisfied, your tongue is physically satisfied, the food is still tasting pretty good, probably not as good as it tasted when you were truly hungry in the beginning. Um, and you just have this knowing it's time to stop. There's a sadness that's going to show up. Um, and to be able to have that dialogue that I just mentioned around a book or a vacation, it's okay. I'm sad. That was so delicious. I can choose to can go on. I can choose yeah. to feel overfull. That's okay. I can choose to keep eating, even if it doesn't taste as good. It's okay. I'm not going to, you know, self-compassion. I'm certainly not going to beat myself up. However, if I allow myself to feel that moment of sadness, that this wonderful, joyous experience of this, like this fabulous bowl of pasta is, you know, is, is 
uh, it's time to stop, even though I could eat the whole bowl, but I'm not going to feel physically comfortable afterwards and it won't taste as good. I get to eat five, six times a day, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, and I get to eat the same food anytime I want to eat that same food. That's part of, you know, making peace with food. Then it helps you get through that moment. And I look at it, I've, I've often called it feelings light versus feelings heavy. Uh, you know, it's not a deep seated, uh, traumatic feeling that you have with something, you know, it's been so hard in your life. It's a moment of sadness. And when you do that inner, you know, dialogue between your little kid that wants it all and wants to keep going, and this is my inner kid work, and your your kind, nurturing adult that says, it's okay, honey, we're going to have it again, you know, later when we're hungry again, or whenever you want it. Um, it and you get up from the table, you put your, you know, dish in the sink or whatever, or you put the food back in the refrigerator if there's some left over and you want to, or in the restaurant, you might want to ask to take it home. It passes very quickly. Mm-hmm. So it's an it's it's an acknowledgement of the feeling and also an understanding that it's okay. You'll be okay if you feel that and you get to move on afterwards. The the last kind of big question I have for you is intuitive eating started a major shift, not only in the field of dietetics, but also in our culture. I mean, it's like TikTok and Instagram. It, it's it's a hot topic right now. What has been most surprising to you about witnessing intuitive eating take on a life of its own like this? I think I'm just more in awe uh, that um, it's it's being spread around the world and that people, I get emails, I have this commitment to answer emails that I get. This is why I'm so busy all the time. <laughs> and I get emails from all over the place of people you know, basically saying, thank you for writing this book. It's just changed my life. So I think it's awe um, that it's, it's got such a deep purpose, intuitive eating, and that it's, it's got a life of its own and it's getting further and further out there in the world that um, I I think it's gratitude that I have for it, that it's, that it's out there. I mean, even um, I, I hope it comes through, but New York times is planning on sending a journalist to, uh, LA to have dinner with Evelyn and me and talk about intuitive eating and do a whole po- profile on intuitive eating. Amazing. And I, maybe I, I shouldn't jinx it. Maybe, you know, sometimes they, these things don't end up happening, but this is where it's at right now. And I'm pretty sure it's going to happen. Uh, I, I don't know exactly how to answer your question other than that. I'm just grateful and in awe of the fact yeah. that it's, that it's out there like that. Um, wow. And I think you didn't ask this question, but I'm going to answer <laughs> if you had. Um, I think that a lot of this has come from our um, our culture today, our society today, po- politically. I, I think we're getting very sick and tired of t- being told um, how we should look, what we should eat, and what our body, the control over our bodies, and, you know, whether it's... Um, in the in the realm of um, the Me Too movement or or George Floyd or any of the places where we're looking at justice in the world, mm-hmm. where we're looking at um, freedom and integrity and everyone being treated the same, I think there's a consciousness, a worldwide consciousness, that um, that we have a right to enjoy our food, to enjoy our bodies, to be what we're meant to be, and um, to not try to continue to be, or not try, but to continue to feel controlled by external forces that tell us how we should look and what we should eat and who we should be and how our body should be. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, I didn't it sounds specifically like, ask that, but I think that's part of it. Yeah, yeah, it's like intuitive eating kind of entered the the world in the midst of like a cultural shift, maybe happening like parallel uh, about yes. we don't want to be told yes. what to do or have control over our bodies in this way. And uh-huh. I also think of the what's going on with with abortion rights right now, and and it, right. it almost seems like the intuitive eating entered the scene at or became popular and at like a really opportune time and almost like the current environment of our culture kind of like maybe expedited it becoming popular because it has such deeper meaning. But wouldn't you say that's synchronicity again? Yeah, wouldn't you say that's spirituality? Absolutely. I mean, it's just (laughs) all coming together. And um, and yeah, and intuitive eating has been out there since 1995. So, you know, getting closer to 30 years. But booming now, booming now. But also, right. it's still, it still kept going, even like a little train chugging along. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Publishing companies, I'm sorry to say, are just out there to make money, and so they would not have kept publishing the book and asking for new editions if it wasn't being, uh, you know, sought after. And mm-hmm. so, but in more of like a little chugging train, and now it's a big locomotive, just you know. Yeah. Yeah. What images am I coming up with? (laughs) I love the metaphors. (laughs) I love that my brain works like that too. So a few little rapid fire questions for you that I ask these to everyone who comes on the podcast. What is your biggest diet culture pet peeve? Well, I would say that there's two. Number one, that we do have the ability and power to control our body's weight. We don't, you know, there's so many factors that have nothing to do with, um, you know, how we're trying to control things. And the belief that you're a better person if you're in a smaller body. Mm-hmm. And it's so powerful out there. And my my heart breaks for people who suffer in the world, who don't have thin privilege, who are who are judged for it, who are told that they should do something. Uh, I have a lot of problem with the medical community that keeps their their answer to everything is go lose weight. And you know, keeping people, actually, there's someone I know who just avoided going to the doctor, so concerned about being judged for her weight and, you know, ended up with diabetes that could have been treated earlier. Um, So my pet peeve is this idea that um, we should be smaller and there's something we can do about it Mm -hmm. to make ourselves smaller. Right. It just makes me very angry and, and upset. That like it, they paint it like it's a matter of personal responsibility that like if you just worked hard enough yes. and wanted it bad enough when yes. really yes. it's so beyond yeah. control. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I just think about the element of like capitalism and like profitability. If they were to say, well, oh, well, this is beyond your control. Well, then they couldn't sell us a, a way to try to achieve a change. And yeah, well, that's that's me going off yeah, of my own Yeah, it's just pet so piece. interesting. <laughs> but I mean, you know, okay, so maybe it costs money to buy a book, but that's it. You know, yep, you're with intuitive eating. That's it. You know, and, and you spend the rest of your life tuned into your own self, into your body, into the right. foods that please you, not having to go buy some super expensive, ridiculously touted foods that, you know, <laughs> you know in that world of clean food. Right. Yeah. I think about all the time with intuitive eating, it's not giving you anything outside of yourself that you don't already have. It's either the book or, right. uh, you know, time with a, with a counselor to help you remove the gunk that diet culture gave you. So you have that yes. access to what was already mm-hmm. inside of you. 
Yeah. And with diet culture, you know, it keeps changing. They go from one plan to another plan to another diet. And each time you have to buy special foods, you have to, um, well, and the amount of clothes that people have to, you know, they, they go on these diets, they lose weight, then they gain the weight back. And then they're at a different size than they were before they went on it. And the, so it's, it's so much of it is connected with capitalism yeah. too. Think yeah. about that, Absolutely. you know, some more clothes that way. <laughs> my last, uh, my last question for you. I love this question so much. What does intuition mean to you and how do you experience it? Mm, Okay. It's to me, it's a knowing, a knowing, N-O-W-I-N-G. I I have the sense sometimes I just have a knowing, like I've had a knowing that there's something bigger than just us, you know, in this, uh, you know, as a, in our lifespan, it's a knowing, a, a sense that, well, I remember a rabbi once said this at a, at a, something I was at, he said, you know how you walk into a room and sometimes you meet someone and you just know that that's someone you want to have in your life. And then sometimes you just know that someone could be, you don't, you, you try to stay away from that person because it's a knowing, it's an intuition, it's a sense it's it's a bigger it's a sense that comes from inside it's not a thinking a thought mm. it's just a sense yeah. so when i say a knowing it sounds like it's a thought but no it's more of a internal knowing you just kind of get it it's kind of like um you know having raised my son and when he was a baby and a toddler just kind of knowing how to to interact with him and to say the things that were you know, helpful for him. It's just a knowing. I didn't necessarily yeah. get taught it. Sure, I read books, but it was more of a an inner sense. Yeah, I don't know instincts. if I if I answered no, your question. No, you answered it beautifully. Yeah, and sort instincts. of a level a level beyond. And this is like so like meta. Like it's even hard to to put words to it. It's okay. When you have that knowing, how does it manifest? Like, how does it make itself known? How do you experience it? I, I would like to say it happens in meditation. It doesn't necessarily. I do meditate, um, even if it's five minutes, you know, I, it's fi- very helpful for me. I think it leads me. Well, let me say something really simple. Sometime I might go, oh, gosh, I think I forgot something upstairs. And I'll so I'll go and I'll run upstairs and I'll realize I left the lights on or I left the air conditioning on or I and it, it was just like I get this message inside, yeah. you know, and then right. I act on it. Yeah. And or or like that, as I was explaining earlier, Leah, about how um when Evelyn walked by and said she was having a problem with this other person writing the book. I just had this knowing. I just knew the right thing to do would be to say. So I took action. I said you know, let, I'll write it with you kind of thing. So I'm a, an action person when I can trust my own inner voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. The question is like, is things that I feel like we barely have words to describe because it's like almost beyond words. Like it's like an energy. It's it's yes. so hard to answer, right. but I love to hear, I ask everyone who comes on that question and Everyone has a different way of describing their their body's way of communicating that knowing. Um, I had someone say once, which I mm-hmm. thought was really interesting. Do you do you have an iPhone? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you know how, how yeah. you can airdrop on an iPhone, like you can send yes. through Bluetooth. Yes. She yes. said. Yes. She said it's like a message just gets dropped in, and it's just like it's here. <laughs> and I loved that. I love that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know how we use the term a gut feeling. 
So I think that it's just, it's something in your gut and it's, that's, I'm so interested in the microbiome too, and the messages that go from our, you know, our brain to our gut and our gut to our brain. I, but it's, it's centered right there. That's our intuition in our gut. It's that knowing it's just that sense. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. I love chatting with you. I I feel like, Ooh, I have a knowing I'm glad that, that we got to be connected in this way and have such a a robust conversation. Is there anything we missed uh, anything on your heart that you're feeling called to share? Well, I think I, I mentioned earlier for a moment for anybody who's beginning their journey on intuitive eating, don't follow the principles step by step. Don't do that. Start with the beginning, which is, of course, uh, you're rejecting diet uh, mentality, diet culture. You ca- you can't move on to intuitive eating while you're still connected to, oh, well, if this doesn't work, I'm going to go, you know, on this next little plan because it's it's going to keep you disconnected from yourself. But after that, go to satisfaction. Start looking at eating in the best way you can get the most satisfaction, and that will help you to tune into your hunger, tune into your fullness, tune into the foods that you enjoy, tune into whether you're having old diet culture thoughts about foods that are taking you away from it. It's going to impact everything if you think in terms of how can I create a satisfying meal? Maybe I want to be in a space that is quiet and comfortable and has some nice music, or maybe I don't want to eat right now while I'm fighting with somebody, or um, I want to eat when I have comfortable hunger rather than ravenous, you know, and primal yeah. hunger. I want to talking about the sadness piece before I want to stop eating when I'm comfortably full and I can handle that feeling of sadness. It's good. You know, it's, it's good to have that feeling. And then I move on and I yeah. get to eat again very soon. So I, I just want to guide everyone to start with satisfaction and don't start worrying about perfect hunger signals or perfect fullness yeah. signals, anything like that. Absolutely. Making peace with food is part of satisfaction too. I love that. There are no rules. You can, you don't have to follow the principles in order. It's a, it's a helpful message. If someone listening to this wants to connect with you further, learn more about your work, where are the places you can be found? Okay. So my, my own personal website that Leah referred to in terms of my words of wisdom, uh, and I do love them myself too, uh, is uh, elisresh.com. And then of course, there's the intuitive eating website, which is intuitiveeating.org. But my personal stuff is on my own website. Uh, I am on Instagram. I have to confess that I don't know how to make a lot of content, but I do repost things on my story every day. And of course, there's credit to the person who wrote it. Um, That's where I spend my time. I'm not on Facebook. I mean, I'm on Facebook, but I don't spend time (laughs) on it unless something gets just transferred from Instagram. So on Instagram, I'm at Elise Resch, and I welcome you to follow me on there and and read all the wisdom of so many other people who know how to make the content. (laughs) I'm pretty proud of myself that I even know how to get on Instagram, frankly. And um, where else would I be? My Oh, if you want to write me a personal email, it's Elise Resch at Gmail. It's really easy. Nothing complicated. Thank you so much, Elise. My cheeks hurt so bad right now from smiling for like an hour and a half straight. It was so wonderful to talk to you. And thank you so much for your time and sharing your story with with the people. Well, it's my pleasure. And I feel like I have a new friend, Leah. Yeah. Oh, that's like the kindest thing you could say. I feel the same. (laughs) Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, if it inspired you, if you learned something, it would mean so much to me if you rated it and reviewed it. 
And if you feel called to, share it with someone who it might resonate with. You can find me on Instagram at leahkern.rd. You can also join my weekly newsletter by visiting leahkernrd.com. And I'll see you next week. Thank you.